thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. I hope you're using the passion book that we are connecting our messages with during this season of Lent. I, I found it to be a great resource. It's an easy read. It's helpful. If you don't have one, grab that out in the Welcome Center because we're going to follow that all the way through to the end of Lent. And I love here is we're in Luke's gospel because Luke is a historian. We learn early on as we're even going to talk about today. Luke went back and found eyewitness accounts and he really wanted to make sure that he could take that gospel message and transmit it to the broader world. That's what he was about. That's what he did. And so in the world around him, there were different ideas because the world there was ruled by the Roman Empire. Of course, the Greeks had been there before and now the Roman Empire. And so this passage we're going to look at today in Luke 23 is very interesting because we're going to see different people who want to rule the world. Like Tears for Fears reminds us, everybody wants to rule the world. But as we're going to see in the passage today, I, lo- I love when 80s music hits with everybody. That's good. And now kids are coming back to 80s music. Isn't that weird? Yeah, bands are redoing Toto. Okay, bold choice, but whatever changes, whatever stays the same, understanding kingship. And for us in our world, it's difficult. For Luke in his world, it's a little bit different for them with the Roman Empire and the different kings that have been conquered in in, Babylon and Rome and Egypt and Greece. They had all these different kingdoms they had seen come and go. But in our passage today, we're going to see all these different people who want to rule over their own kingdoms and what it means when they encounter Jesus Christ, how that changes things for them. So we're going to open up Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then the whole company, that's the Sanhedrin, remember them from last week? The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation. And forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod had his soldiers treat, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Before this, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. It's interesting, I was reading an article this week about uh, Jay Leno was being interviewed and they were talking to him about the difference in the world in the late night TV and Jay Leno was lamenting the death of 
how he used to lovingly poke fun at both sides of the aisle politically here in America. If you remember Jay Leno, he was especially good at doing that. I enjoyed it as he did that, and he had such a deft touch with the way he, he did it. And let's face it, we could all use a little amusement in today's uh, hostility and polarization. It'd be a little bit of fun to see just having to laugh a little bit at some of these things. But the great thing about America is that we elect these folks, and so comedians never have to worry about having a new batch of people to poke fun at. Presidents, Congress members, and even celebrities. I mean, we, we lift these people up with our endorsements, whether we go see their movie or whether we elect them at the ballot box. And whatever they say and whatever they do, we often find ourselves uh, being used or sometimes even a little horrified at what they say. There's plenty of punchlines to go around. That's not the case with monarchs, though. Monarchs, uh, they have little sense of humor. And despite the sensational stories we see in Britain, where they're not much more than figureheads, the idea of kingship in our world today is very different from, it was, from what it was in the ancient world. It's far less glamorous and far less uh, made fun of. It's very different from the great experiment we have in our republic here in America. And sometimes I think we struggle to put it together. But the one thing I think we all understand is people are sinful. And no matter what platform they support or office they hold, no matter how high or how low they are in the social structure, they can make some terrible choices with what they do and what they say. But for kings or queens, this can be doubly difficult, as we've learned in history, because they have not only unlimited power, but they also have virtually limitless egos to go along with it. Sinful humans don't do very well with absolute power. Maybe that's why God never really gave it to us, never said we should have it, despite our own desires, from the smallest to the largest, that we would have it. So the question we have today that we want to look at as we understand that we all, in some ways, probably make terrible kings and queens, what if there was a king who was different from all those other rulers that we've seen and known in history? What if we found someone that could lead us and guide us and take care of everything for us without any of the ego or the collateral damage? Someone who was so good, so perfect, and so loving. Someone that had so much wisdom that literally there would be no punchline for a late-night comedian to offer. Who wouldn't have a king like that? Someone that would make all the right decisions. Nobody would miss out. No one would suffer for it. And Luke, in his gospel, as he is reconstructing this story, he wants to introduce us to that king in, in this passion narrative that he's telling. That king is Jesus. But he also wants us to understand how Jesus is completely different from the other rulers. So now we're going to look at two would-be kings in the story, Pilate, who's the Roman governor, and Herod, who's the puppet king that the Romans have put over the Jews. And let's just say they aren't the rulers that any of us would hope to have controlling our lives. As such, they are rightfully pounced on in history and in God's word because they're truly terrible. They really are. But I wonder for myself, if I was in their place what kind of a ruler would I be? Sometimes it's amazing to see when we get a little power, what we can do with it. And since Luke's a historian, he's going to take this narrative, as we said, to a non-Jewish audience. And he's really concerned that they're going to start with 
something in mind. Two things, actually, he wants them to see. First of all, Jesus is the Christ, and therefore, he is 100% innocent of the charges being brought against him. As we saw last week when Jesus was taken and he was beaten overnight, that he was tortured, that they beat a confession out of him, Jesus had done nothing wrong, and yet the people saw him as a threat, the leaders, the religious authorities. And so he is not only the Christ, which they are unwilling to accept, because that's the paradigm, he's innocent. He's completely innocent of all of this. So Jesus is indeed the one true king that all people have waited upon, but the rulers don't see it. That's the reality. So as we look at these two bad kings in Luke 23, and we contrast them with the one true king in Jesus, who has all truth and all mercy and all grace and justice and love embodied kind of up in him, we're going to see something a bit uncomfortable. It's really important that we see it, but it's going to unsettle us a bit, but that's okay. That's okay for us, because Lent is about shaking things loose in our lives and making room for more of God in them. This is important that we do this. So as we look at these interactions between the three kings, we're going to see something powerful about ourselves. You see, we often fall in this trap that we see Jesus just like people who don't know him as the Christ see him. That's what we do. We often view Jesus just as Pilate and Herod and even the assembly or the Sanhedrin views him. And we need to be honest with ourselves. Because whether you know this passage or not, you can guess that we're not supposed to see Jesus the way that they see him. We don't want to see Jesus the way they did. So let's dig in and look at these interactions in some detail. And that's great because Luke gives us a lot of detail. And we're going to look at those accusing him last week as well. Not just Herod and Pilate, but also that assembly of 71, the Sanhedrin. And we're going to play, pay close attention to how they all react. I want you to do that. And we're going to learn more about ourselves and how we react to Jesus and where we need to grow in our faith and in our obedience this Lent. So, first of all, Jesus goes before this guy named Pilate. So he goes to see this guy Pilate. And who was he? He was the Roman prefect or, or governor. And he was uh, over all of Judea and Samaria. He only ruled for 10 years because some things happened after Jesus' death that didn't go very well for him politically and personally. And so he was in Jerusalem like everyone was. They'd all come in for the Passover. And he was staying, from what we know, in the palace of Herod the Great. And that's the Herod you know from earlier in Jesus' birth. And Pilate was not a nice guy. To put it lightly, he was a terrible guy. He was known for being cruel, abusing power for his own gain. He was known for brutally destroying anyone who dared to challenge his authority. You see, Pilate was in the middle of this giant political and military machine we knew as the Roman Empire. He wasn't at the top, but he surely wasn't at the bottom. He was in what they called the equestrian or the middle class of, of the Roman Empire. So he had plenty of power and he was hungry for more of it. That's what he wanted. And anything that got in the way, anything that got in the way, he took care of. You see, being in the middle was good for Pilate because the way the Roman Empire worked, as long as Pilate kept all the insurrection to a low roar, and as long as he collected all the money Rome demanded from his province, he could do whatever else he wanted. 
all those tax collectors we knew like Levi would answer to their various guys and up the food chain we have Pilate and Pilate lived a good life and anybody that threatened that life he he took care of them if you're from Trumbull County you know what I'm saying it's what he did is that very different than what we hear about in our world today Let's think about it. Let's think about it. Pilate ruthlessly protected his own comfort. Now, as I ask you, think about that in terms of your life. Pilate ruthlessly protected his comfort. He despised anyone or anything that got in the way of what he felt belonged to him. I deserve that, and if you get in my way, I'm going to whack you. Maybe the only difference between us and Pilate is the amount of opportunity we have to get our way. That's who he was. If you look back in Luke 13, what you'd find is Pilate even killed some of Herod's subjects, who was the king, who was sort of above him. They kind of had to play nice, but they didn't like each other. And one of the reasons they didn't like each other was when one of them and the other one was having a misunderstanding. In this case, in Luke 13, Pilate killed some of Herod's subjects. They may have been anti-Roman zealots, we don't even know. But they were offering sacrifices and he kills them and their blood is mingled with the blood of the sacrifices being offered in their worship of the Lord. Wow. Let that sink in for a minute. That's how little... Pilate cared about the people around him and what they thought. He didn't care about anybody. He didn't care about Herod. He didn't care about anybody. As long as he got his way, that's all that mattered. He was too busy, too powerful, and too focused on what mattered to him to worry about any of these things, including Jesus. So when Jesus comes in, Herod looks at, or Pilate rather looks at him and says, I have an entire day of fun scheduled, and I've got to deal with this guy. Who is this guy anyhow? The funny thing is, when we get so worried about our own comfort, we often don't have time for anybody or anything. Just like Pilate didn't have time for Jesus. Maybe you've fallen into that as well. Pilate didn't have time for Jesus. And having the Sanhedrin screaming at him first thing in the morning was frankly a pain in the keister that he didn't want to deal with. He had better things to do than deal with their baloney. After all, didn't they know who they were dealing with here? Did they not know how busy Pilate is? What about you? Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at someone and said, your backwater ideas are not my problem? I don't have time to deal with you today. I don't have time to listen to what you have to say. The Sanhedrin, they can condemn Jesus all day long, Pilate thought, but they don't have the juice I have. I killed people in the temple. He can't be bothered. He could kill anybody whenever he wanted. They could take to the streets and he would crush them as far as he was concerned. But Pilate didn't want any trouble with Rome, so he said, all right, I got an hour. Let's see what you want to talk about. Pilate listens. Jesus is brought before him. And throughout the conversation, suddenly he learns something interesting. Jesus is from Galilee. 
his old frenemy Herod's jurisdiction. Now, as we said, Herod and Pilate were not good friends, but Pilate wants to learn a little bit. So he listens for a while, and then he sends Jesus along his way. After all, he's got a couple hours, and he wants to see how this plays out. But Pilate, he questions Jesus before he sends him, and he asks them who he is. Who are you really, Jesus? What are you really about? You see, that's the question the Sanhedrin asked Jesus last week. That's the question Pilate asks them today. Who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? It's a tactic of the heart we use in our lives. What is Jesus real? What is, what is this really about? Is Jesus your eternal life insurance policy? Or is he your Lord in the here and now? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves during Lent. Pilate doesn't beat around the bush. Are you the king of the Jews? You see, it's funny that the Sanhedrin who illegally beat Jesus and got all this stuff, they've taken that charge of blasphemy that they know the Romans don't care about, and they've massaged it into something they feel a Roman prefect has to pay attention to. In fact, three different civil charges. Now, we remember they illegally beat it out of Jesus, but here's their three charges, essentially, that they have. First of all, tax evasion. Some things don't change. Isn't it funny? Just the timing of how God does this with our world, right? Apparently, they ignored what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Everybody remembers, render to Caesar. Give to God. What's, what's God's? He says, uh, no, they know that's a lie. Second, rebellion. Rebellion. He's rebelling. He's, lead, he's leading the people. Even right here, he's leading the people against you. It's funny, as we'll put ourselves in the story next week with the people, not just these guys this week, but next week we're going to put ourselves in Luke's story again with a guy named Barabbas. He really was a rebel, and not the cool kind in Star Wars. Really? We're going to be right in that next week again. We're going to keep putting ourselves in the story. Rebellion. And the third one usurpation of Caesar's throne, that he was, he wanted to be a king, and we only have Caesar for our king. Now, you know they didn't want Caesar for their king. And you see, Pilate knows all this, too. The Sanhedrin think they have Pilate right where they want him, that they're going to have to have Pilate side with them, that he's going to go up and say, yeah, you know what, guys, this, this makes sense. You see, they couldn't kill Jesus. They needed the Romans to do that. They weren't allowed to do that. But like Pilate, the Sanhedrin, the assembly, as Luke calls them, they have their own little kingdom, too. They have their own little kingdom. They're not up in the middle of the machine like uh, Pilate is. They're not up at the top like Caesar. They're down at the bottom. They have their little piece of the pie. And the funny thing is, no matter how high or how low you are in the machine, you want to protect what's yours, even from Jesus. It wasn't big. It wasn't powerful. They had... Very little real power. I kind of think of Dwight from The Office as they're coming in there. If you've ever seen The Office, this is far worse than that. But someone that thinks they have real power, and then when they get stuck with someone with real power, they realize they really can't do anything. That's how the Sanhedrin felt. And they're pleading with Pilate, no, you've got to take care of this. You've got to do this. This is how it needs to be. We've got to do this. But Pilate recognizes there's something else going on here. He doesn't see any rebellion brewing. And the third charge, the kingship thing. Does Jesus really think he's the king? 
Of course Jesus thinks he's not just a king. Jesus is the king of kings. But he's not the kind of king Pilate thinks he is. Jesus is something more. And Jesus is not the king the Jews expected when they shouted, Hosanna, Hoshina, save us. He's something different. He wasn't the kind of king, he wasn't the kind of rabbi, the kind of teacher Judas wanted, nor the rich young ruler, nor so many people that had rejected him. Jesus was not that kind of king at all, and people kept missing him. Even when he said his kingdom was different in John 18 or that he would suffer, be rejected, and die in Luke 9, 22, they would not accept it. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He had said that so much earlier in his ministry. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Remember, he told them, put your swords away, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus' kingdom was a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom that they would not accept. Jesus was not about building earthly kingdoms with selfish earthly goals of power and wealth and control, and because of that, they didn't know what to do with him. That's why the Sanhedrin and Pilate both struggled because they wanted their kingdom to come. When Jesus said, here's how you should pray, they skipped that lesson. How about us? How about us? They wanted their will to be done on earth because they know how it ought to be. How many of us do that? We go for the hot take. Instantly, we're blazing something out on social media or we're calling up a friend. And believe me, if you're older and you're not on social media, you have social media. It's called, Can You Believe? We've always had social media. It just took a little longer to chisel it on stone tablets back in the day. We always did it because our hearts have been the same. So when Jesus calls the assembly and all the Jews... And the Romans to recognize that the first ought to be last. That's Luke 13, 30, if you want to write that one down. When he says, hey, if you're first, you're going to be last. If you think this is about building your kingdom, you're going to be at the back of the line in God's kingdom. Well, that was too much. And we know what they did. They were determined to protect their power. They wanted to maintain their control. They knew what God wanted, and this guy wasn't it. It's so funny to me how quickly all of us, even in our world today, will resort to by any means necessary to get our way. Whether we're in charge, whether we're religious leaders, or whether we're just commenting on what's happening in the world around us. I want to caution everyone here, whether it's in life or ministry and politics, I want to caution all of our, our leaders here in our church, our elders, our teachers, to be very careful when you think that you know what God wants to do. And when you're willing to manipulate or talk out of both sides of your mouth or do whatever, God never honors what he saw the Sanhedrin doing or what Pilate does. God never honors when we say horrible things about people on the internet because we disagree with them. It doesn't matter if they're wrong. 
Being nasty to someone is never what God calls us to do. Manipulating a situation is never what God calls us to do. That's not who he is. That's not his spiritual kingdom. When we whisper to each other something because it's a tidbit of gossip, that's never what God calls us to do. It reflects on this place. It reflects on the true kingdom of God. And it reflects on Jesus. The problem with both the Sanhedrin and Pilate and even with us is that we become so obsessed with growing and maintaining and perfecting our own kingdoms. We see Jesus as a threat and we say, no, this is how Jesus wants it. Jesus isn't, he doesn't want me to be this way. I know what Jesus wants because we want everything in life to be on our own terms. We want our own kingdom and Jesus says, no, you don't have your kingdom. I have a kingdom and it's not like anything on this earth. It doesn't operate like anything on this earth. So all the things you see people doing, that's not how I work. Consider the facts of this story. The religious leaders that bring Jesus to Pilate should have known first and foremost from the Old Testament who he was. So Pilate's asking him, who are you? Are you a king? But that's the same thing they're asking him too because he threatens their kingdoms. They had recently seen him feed thousands of people, but they would not believe and now they sought to kill him. Because they wanted Jesus to be their king rather than for them to be his subject. And there's an important heart lesson in that for us. The difference is striking because one leads to gain and yet Jesus calls them to a life that is filled with loss. Luke 9, 23, Jesus reminds them of the cost of discipleship. Jesus reminds them of what it costs. And he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The religious leaders think Jesus is guilty, yet Pilate sees that he's innocent. Think about that. The church leaders think he's guilty, and the secular guy who's got nothing to gain and thinks he runs the universe goes, you know what? Nothing wrong with this guy. Why are you bothering me with this? He says he's innocent. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. Why are you making me deal with all this stuff? They want him put out of their lives because Jesus called them to a life that wasn't about him being a vending machine or an ego-feeding machine or a bash others over the head with the rules machine. Self-satisfaction is not what God's kingdom is about. It's the exact opposite. God's kingdom as Jesus is about to show them, is about sacrifice. The kingdom of grace where comfort and contempt are laid down at the foot of the cross. You see, we often react like Pilate did with apathy and annoyance, or we react with outrage like the Sanhedrin. But as Jesus gets closer to upsetting the apple cart of our lives and demanding we give it all to him, we become even more and more like the Sanhedrin. We feel threatened and we want Jesus gone because he wants too much of us. He wants our time. He wants our stuff. He wants our lives. He wants our very thoughts to be about him. He wants it all. Pilate and the Sanhedrin both ask, who is this guy? Is he really our king? And yet they both reject him. 
They say, nah. And so Pilate sends Jesus on to Herod. And Herod makes Pilate look like he's from Sesame Street. Herod Antipas ruled for 42 years. He married his brother's wife. He killed John the Baptist when he was done being amused because a close relative did a belly dance and told him to, if you've ever seen the old movie. You guys see, you get that one, right? But this is far more than Pilate passing the buck. It's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of politics. But Jesus, he's being used as a bargaining chip. Luke gives us some details that he knows because there's a woman named Joanna we learn about in Luke 8, 3. She's probably one of those eyewitnesses that Luke knew about. And her husband, his name was Shuza, and he was the caretaker of Herod's house. And so she probably is the one that lets Luke in on this. So later on, they get all the details and Luke says, you know what, this is important. So we know that Herod really wanted to meet Jesus. He'd heard all about him. And just like he wanted to meet John the Baptist, we know that he then killed, he beheaded John the Baptist. Herod's a horrible, horrible guy. But Joanna, who's a believer, and her husband, Shuza, he runs Herod's household. So Herod is also in the Upper West Side of Jerusalem. That's where he was. He's at the old Hasmonean Palace. That's where he was staying for the Passover, we know from history. And he's excited. He says, yeah, bring this guy in. I want to see this guy. I want the spectacle, the experience. I want the, the spiritual experience of this guy. I, I want to know Jesus. I want to have that great high, that great experience. Come on in, Jesus. Show me you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. Right? Come on in. The spectacle, the experience of Jesus, but he doesn't want the cost of discipleship. So much like the other guys, but he's willing to come. He wants the spiritual mountaintop. He just doesn't want to have to buy in and change anything in his life. How about you guys? How about me? When the fun dies down and Herod recognizes that Jesus won't play along, Herod comes up with his own game to amuse himself. After all, he's got some time to kill before his next scheduled activity at the Passover. He dresses Jesus up in a beautiful robe, and he and his soldiers mock him. He gift wraps him like a presence, makes fun of him, and sends him back to Pilate. At least he got to have a little fun, and it helped the day to pass a little faster. And Pilate's soldiers and Herod's soldiers, they beat and mock and continue to abuse Jesus, just like the Sanhedrin. They put a crown of thorns that digs into his head, and the thorns were several inches long, and they would have dug down and done Great damage and great pain to Jesus. Just like we learned about last week, it was a lot of pain. And what they don't realize is they commiserate and have fun toying with this guy they think that is beneath them, even though he's the king of kings. They're fulfilling prophecy, Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're having a lot of fun at Jesus' expense, not even realizing they're fulfilling God's prophecy as they mock and torture and treat Jesus so poorly. They ridicule him, and on that very fact, they became buddies because they got to beat this guy up together. How messed up is that? But how many of us commiserate and choose sides because we're all outraged or against something, and that's how we become friends with someone? They don't understand 
they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand how this guy thinks he's a king, yet Jesus will make his kingdom come and not in a palace of kings or not by military might or all the things that they think matter. Jesus' kingdom will come in the hearts of men and women like us. When we do what none of these people would, that's when we give our whole selves, our whole lives to him. And Jesus tells us in this passage when he doesn't respond to Herod, it's not about the spectacle. It's not about the experience. I am sick of church people saying, if only my church did more of this. Why can't you be more like that church? And then they'll go to that church and say, oh, this church is good, but if only we could have a little more of this. What we need is a lot more of Jesus and a lot less of us. The kingdom of God is built upon the cross of Calvary. It's an instrument of pain and execution, but chiefly it reminds us that God's kingdom is built upon personal sacrifice. And that begins in our hearts. That's where that kingdom will come. That's where that kingdom is going to come. This week I want to ask you as you think about that, are you like Pilate and the Sanhedrin? Are you so busy thinking you can build your own kingdom and have it all your way? Jesus tells us that the kingdom is not of this world. Are you like Herod, where you want the perfect experience? You're a consumer. You think church is coming. It's all about what you want or what you get out of it. The thing is, this heart kingdom, this kingdom that God calls us to, the reality is we can only build one kingdom at a time in our lives. If we're putting everything in one thing, we're not going to put it in another. That's how it works. We can only build one kingdom at a time, and we all have to decide what kingdom will it be. Will it be God's kingdom here in this place, or will it be our own kingdom? You can't build both. This week, I'm going to invite you to do something. I'm going to invite you to do something. I want you to do something here. If, if God's kingdom, if Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world, it's not of this world, it's something different, I want you to take some time this week and I want you to write down in your own life. I want you to make room for God this Lent. I want you to take time and write down your life, your choices, your resources, your relationship. Is it flowing from the cross? Are you building that kingdom come that God calls us to? Are you building your own? I want you to write that down and pray about it and really reflect on it. But then I want you to do something else. I want you to take it to your spouse, if they're a believer, to a, a trusted brother and sister in Christ. And I want you guys to really talk about it and pray together about it. Even bring it back next Sunday. Keep it in your pocket. Put it in your Bible, whatever it is. But I really want you to do that. This week I want you to reflect on your own life. I want you to write that down and pray about it. And then I want you to talk to someone who really knows you and knows what it means to belong to Jesus. We must consider if we're like Herod and we want the experience, if we're like Pilate and the Sanhedrin and we want the power that we wanted our own way. This is where it gets real. There is one true king, and he's not like the rest. And he calls us to surrender to him and to follow him on that road to Calvary. Let's pray. Father, as we take time this week in our own lives to reflect, as we consider what it means to belong to you, 
that we can only have one king and it can't be us and we can only have one job and we're come to be servants, to be subjects to the king. We're not here just to have it be about us and to be our way. It's not about our power or our experience or even our comfort. God, that's hard because that goes against the grain of everything in our world. That's probably why we know it's true. Because you call us to a different kingdom and a different world. So Father, that we would take time this week, Lord, we'd make room for you this Lent, that we would reflect on what it means to make you king over all of our hearts and all of our lives, that we would not do what those other rulers did, as we read in Luke's account, that we would give you all of ourselves. Lord, that we would reflect that we would be willing to be honest with ourselves and with a brother and sister, and that we would sit down and really say, am I giving God the first fruits of all that I have, of all that I am? Am I giving him all of myself? God, may your kingdom come in this place, in our hearts, in our lives, and in this church, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.